Why does God allow suffering and trials to come into our lives? You know, there's probably no greater question that we as humans wrestle with. The question of suffering and pain. My experience as a pastor, I've seen generally two responses to suffering in our lives. Suffering tends to either drive people away from God or bring them closer to him. And in our passage today, James wants to encourage believers to not lose heart in the midst of our suffering. This is the second time now in our series that James has addressed the issue of suffering. If you recall, weeks ago when we started our series in the book of James, James opened up his letter dealing with the question of trials and and tribulations that come into our lives. See, James was written, if you recall, to a group of Christians who are going through tremendous trials. In Acts chapter 8, the early church was facing tremendous persecution. Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, had just been stoned. And a widespread persecution had broken out against the church. And these early Christians were forced to flee for their lives. They were scattered throughout the Middle East. They had left their homes, their businesses, their families in in cases, and, and they were forced to run and go into hiding because of their commitment to worshiping Jesus Christ. And so James wrote the book of James to these followers of Jesus who were scattered scattered abroad, and, and, and James knew very intimately the reality of suffering. He knew the trials and tribulations that God's people can go through. He had no illusions about the hardships of this world. But James also understood the hope that comes with a patient faith. And that's what our passage this morning is all about, uh, patience. Uh, a supernatural patience that's possible for, for brothers and sisters in Christ when we hope in God in the midst of our suffering. James is going to talk about this patient faith in our passage this morning, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. I want to read our passage together, and then I want to highlight for us today three pictures of a patient faith that James gives us in this passage, serving as examples for us as we face our own trials and hardships in life. James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, an example, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. In our passage here this morning, James gives us 
three pictures of patience to encourage us in the midst of our trials and suffering. Some of you here this morning are going through incredible trials and hardships. In a room this size, it's inevitable that that many of us are in the midst of great trials. Some of you have, have been there in the past and have seen God's faithfulness lead you through those trials. And others of you maybe have yet to face real significant suffering and hardship in your life. But no matter who you are this morning, every single one of us here will go through trials and hardships in our lives. And so here in our passage today, James gives us three pictures of patience, a patient faith in the midst of suffering to help give us hope and encouragement. The first picture James highlights for us is that of the farmer trusting in God's provision. The farmer trusting in God's provision. He begins here with this illustration of the farmer, uh, an illustration that people of all times and all places can relate to. The farmer waiting for the harvest. All of us in this room are dependent upon those farmers who work so hard to provide the produce that sustains us. Throughout history and all around the world, people can identify with this illustration. And when you think about the farmer and and the illustration of farming that James gives us here in our passage this morning, there's probably no occupation that works harder for its goals while at the same time being so dependent on forces outside of their control. I I mean, think about the work that the farmer puts in. He he tills the land. He, He plows the field. He plants the seed. He, he waters it. He, he, he nourishes it with, with fertilizers. He puts fences up around the field to keep the animals from, from devouring his crop. He puts all this work and energy into the produce that he hopes for. But at the end of the day, the farmer is dependent on a whole host of circumstances that are out of his control. The farmer must wait patiently for the rains to come. The farmer must, must hope and, and believe and trust that those seeds are going are gonna to sprout and bear fruit. The farmer is dependent upon the sun to, to warm and nourish the crops. And, and all of these things are out of the farmer's control. And James gives us this illustration of the farmer to remind us that, that our faith is very much the same way. Faith involves trusting God with what you cannot control even those seasons of suffering that we'll go through in our lives. Oh, there's so much that we can do to control the events in our lives. But at the same time, there is so much that's out of our control. And we need to put our hope and trust in God. One of my family's favorite vacation destinations is Door County, Wisconsin. This past March, when we were Doing our interviews with Pastor Stephen, during spring break week, our family went over to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and we spent a day with Stephen and his family, getting to know them as part of our interview process. And then after that day, we went up to Door County and spent two days up in Door County just for a a quick family getaway. And it was an interesting experience being in Door County in the middle of the winter. You know, we had always been there in the summertime. Door County, Wisconsin is known for its orchards. It's world famous for its cherry orchards. But in the middle of the winter, the orchards were barren and stark. 
and they were covered with snow and it was cold outside and, and there was no life. There were no tourists. It was quiet and it was cold. Two weeks ago, our family went back to Door County with Kim's folks and we had a great week of vacation there. And it was so amazing to me to see the transformation that had taken place from March to August. Now the cherry blossoms were, were blooming in full. The fruit was hanging from the trees. There was life. There was energy. It was such a stark contrast. And I thought about our passage this morning. And I thought about those cherry farmers who work so hard and so faithfully pruning their trees, preparing the crop. But the reality is, while the farmer can do a lot of work towards the harvest, ultimately, it's only after those trees go dormant and endure the long, cold winter that they'll ultimately produce their fruit. And in the same way, friends, if we want God to produce a harvest of growth in our lives, we too will sometimes have to go through long, dormant seasons of darkness and cold. But if we'll wait patiently, trusting in God's faithfulness in the midst of our suffering, God will produce valuable fruit within us. This was the point of our opening passage in this series, James chapter 1. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, James reminds us, he says, Consider it pure joy. Ginger, you quoted this verse this morning. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the fruit that God wants to grow within us. And oftentimes he uses the trials and the hardships in our life to produce maturity and growth in us. But we need to go through some very hard seasons in order to experience that fruit of a mature faith. But it's not just the fruit that God produces within us that James encourages us to wait patiently for here in our passage this morning. James also reminds us to keep looking towards God's ultimate provision for our trials. The return of Jesus Christ. The great hope that we have when Jesus returns. In verse 8 of our passage this morning, James declares, Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. How do we hope in the midst of our trials? We stand firm looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, James wants to remind us here that our suffering won't last forever. There's an end in sight. And what a great promise this is. Jesus is coming again. Did you know, friends, that the New Testament has over 300 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ? If you do the math, that's one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament speaks to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, God wants you to have the hope of the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is returning. And, and, and we hold on to the hope of Christ's promised return. And it, and it gives us the courage to persevere in the face of our suffering. Because Jesus has promised us that one day, all things will be made new. All wrongs will be righted. Our trials and hardships will be no more. And sin and death will be defeated once and for all. 
What a great day that's going to be. What, what a glorious day. Can you imagine the reunions we're going to have? Seeing Katie again, or, or Brooklyn again. Seeing our loved ones again. Seeing those who have passed away and gone home to be with the Lord. And what a celebration that's going to be. Jesus tells us to hold on to the hope of his second coming as we face the trials of our lives today. Lastly, here in verses 7 through 9, James tells us that as we learn to trust in God's provision, he, he also admonishes us that we shouldn't grumble against one another. He says, brothers, don't grumble against each other. Well, what is grumbling? Well, grumbling is, is arguing. It's complaining. It's backbiting. It's slander. And I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but I know at least for me, when, when the trials of life are bearing down on me, when the pressures of life seem to be squeezing in on me, I find the temptation very easy to take out my frustrations on those around me. That's what James is talking about, grumbling. Don't grumble against each other. When, when the suffering of life comes, when the trials of life come, the temptation is going to be to take those pains and hurts out on others. But James says, don't do it. Don't become a grumbler. James reminds us here that grumbling is a sin. And God will judge us for this negative speech against one another. So, so here's the deal this morning. We need to find a better way to handle the pressures of our suffering than allowing it to lead us into sin against our brothers and sisters. So what are we to do? Well, let me give you a suggestion this morning, friends. Instead of grumbling, why not try stumbling? Don't grumble, but stumble. Stumble into the arms of Jesus. You see, you have a choice when the suffering of life comes. You can allow those trials and suffering to lead you into the sin of, of backbiting and slander and, and hurting others who are close to you. Or you can stumble into the arms of Jesus. And friends, sometimes that's all we can do in the midst of our suffering is stumble and stumble into the open and loving arms of Jesus. I learned this lesson in a in a profound way when I was serving at my former church a dozen years ago. Our church went through a, a difficult season where we had had a couple pastoral transitions and interim pastors, and, and our church began to suffer financially. And the church board came to our pastoral staff, and they said, we're in trouble, and we're going to ask all of you pastors to take a significant pay cut. And they as a board had decided that they were going to take 10% off of all of our salaries to help maintain the, the budget of the church. Now, that's a big deal to, to go one week to the next losing 10% of your salary. And, you know, we had a choice in the midst of that hardship and trial. It was very tempting to grumble. You know, man, if that last pastor had done a better job, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Who do, the, who do this church board think they are, cutting our pay? I mean, don't they realize how hard we work? Or, or maybe if that interim pastor just did a better job, we wouldn't lose so many people. And, and that was the temptation in our sinful hearts to grumble. But to his credit, the man serving as our interim pastor during that time, he pulled our staff together and he said, 
We're not going to let this situation lead us to grumble. Instead, he invited us to stumble into the arms of Jesus. And so as a pastoral team, we came together and we prayed and we trusted in God's faithfulness and we stuck together in the midst of that difficult period. And sure enough, over the course of the next year, God eventually led our church back into a place of financial stability. But we hung together and we grew in our faith and we grew closer to one another through that experience. You see, maybe you're in a situation here this morning where you're finding it tempting to grumble about your circumstances. Maybe you're wrestling with with a trial in your marriage and the temptation is to grumble against your spouse. Maybe you're dealing with a with a rebellious, defiant child. And your temptation is to grumble about, against your kid or against your spouse or other members in your family. Maybe you're dealing with a hardship at work today. And your temptation is to, to grumble against your boss or your coworker. Friends, what good does grumbling do? It doesn't do anything good. All grumbling does is make you a bitter and angry person and lead to hurt and division in those relationships with the people that you're grumbling against. Grumbling doesn't do us any good. And so instead of grumbling over our trials and suffering, why not go stumbling into the arms of Jesus? Why not take your suffering and trials to Jesus this morning? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, friends, when we fall into the arms of Jesus in the midst of our trials and suffering, he promises to take those burdens. He promises to lift us up and carry us through those periods of suffering and pain. And God will do that for you because he's faithful. So don't grumble, but stumble. The second picture James gives us in our passage this morning is that of the prophets serving God's purposes. Verses 10 and 11, James says, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Here in these verses, James turns to some real-life examples of individuals who remained faithful to God in the midst of adversity. And why does James highlight the Old Testament prophets? Well, friends, James wants to remind us here that the patient faith that we can have in the midst of our suffering is more than just wishful thinking. It's more than just a a pie-in-the-sky type of thinking. The the patient faith that that we can hold on to, the hope that we can have as we face the trials of our lives, it it has real substance to it. And this is why James wants to point us back to real-life examples of men and women who went before us and faced the hardships and trials of, our, of their lives. See, James understood, just like, like we do here at Lakes Free with our faith stories, James knew that real stories have the power to bring real comfort into our lives. And so he points us back to these great heroes of the faith. And you know, when you read the prophets, what you'll find are that some of the most powerful, hope-filled, encouraging words in the Bible were penned by the prophets. And what's remarkable when you study the lives and the the teachings of the prophets 
is that the vast majority of the prophet's words were produced in the midst of tremendous suffering and hardship. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, for example. How many of you have been encouraged by Jeremiah's famous words in Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you have been encouraged by those words? I'd venture to guess that many of you here this morning would say that those words are even your life verse. Jeremiah's provided great encouragement to men and women of faith for thousands of years now. But you know something? When Jeremiah wrote those words back in 600 B.C., he was writing in the midst of intense persecution in the land of Israel. The Babylonian Empire was marching towards Jerusalem to lay siege to Jerusalem and to take the people of Judah into captivity. Jeremiah's message wasn't popular with the people. And so Jeremiah was betrayed by his own family. He was beaten. He was put into stocks. He was thrown into a cistern. He was exiled to Egypt. And he was ultimately stoned to death. And this is the man who wrote, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. See, in the midst of all this adversity, Jeremiah remained faithful to God. And God used Jeremiah's faithfulness in powerful ways. Not only in his day, but Jeremiah's ministry continues to bless God's people today. You know, when I think about the prophets of the Old Testament, it reminds me of that, the special role that, that oil plays in the Bible. Here we have the, the picture of the olive oil. And, and oil has a special role in the Bible. Oil is often used as a symbol of God's anointing. And so whenever God wants to set apart someone for ministry or leadership, oftentimes we see them being anointed with oil. Whether it was the priests of the temple in the Old Testament or, or King David being anointed by Samuel or, or other prophets throughout the Bible, even Jesus himself was anointed. And, and, and oil was this symbol of God setting someone apart for a special intentional ministry. But friends, I want you to understand this this morning. To get the oil, the olive must first be crushed. In order to experience the anointing of that oil, an olive must first be crushed. And in the same way, friends, our trials are often God's greatest means for growing our faith. He uses them to produce maturity in us. He uses them to increase our dependence on him. And sometimes God allows trials into our lives to prepare us to serve others. And so maybe this morning, like the olive, maybe today you find yourself in a season of crushing. And while that trial isn't enjoyable, and, and, and while, while those trials are often hard, I want you to consider this this morning. Maybe God is preparing you for your anointing. Maybe God wants to take your pain and turn it into your platform. Maybe God wants to take your present ministry and use it as your path. Your present misery, I'm sorry, and use it as the path to your future ministry. Maybe God wants to take your trial today and use it 
as your testimony tomorrow. You see, friends, God wastes no suffering in our lives. And if we'll trust him, hoping in his faithfulness, God can take our burdens and use them to be incredible blessings. I think of my mom, for example. My mom's a real hero of mine. You know, seven years ago when my dad passed away at 60 years old, that was a real tough time for my mom to lose her spouse in what was still a very young age. And she went through a long period of suffering and grief. But you know, to my mom's credit, after a prolonged period of suffering and trials and hardships, she said, Lord, I'm going to let you use this trial in my life to be a blessing for others. I'm going I'm to let you take my pain and turn it into my platform, Lord. And so my mom joined a ministry called Widow's Might. And she began leading Bible studies with women who were going through their own periods of grief and suffering and loss. And she let God take the pain that she had gone through and use it to bless other women in the midst of their trials and hurt. See, that's what God can do if we'll trust him in our suffering. And so what about you this morning? Do you believe that God could use your present trials to be a blessing to others? He can. And he will if you'll let him. And so maybe today, if you're experiencing a period of suffering and trial in your life, why not turn to God in prayer and begin to ask him, Lord, how can you use this suffering that I'm experiencing today to be a blessing in the lives of others? I may be crushed, but I want to believe, Lord, that this crushing is leading to my anointing to be a blessing to others. God can do that for you. The third picture James gives us in our passage this morning is that of Job, hoping in God's plans. In this final picture of a patient faith, James reminds us of the story of Job, a man who literally lost everything, and yet he continued to hope in God through it all. Maybe you remember the story. God allowed Satan to bring a series of trials and afflictions into Job's life. First, Job lost everything he had. He lost his possessions, his home, his children. And what did Job say in response? Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Next, Job was afflicted with painful sores all over his body. And Job's wife came to him and said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And what was Job's response? You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Next, Job's friends show up, offering Job a whole lot of unhelpful advice. And how did Job respond to his friends? Job 13, 5, though he slay me, Still, I will hope in him. And finally, after all his suffering, Job continued to look to the Lord for deliverance. In Job 19, 25 through 7, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. 
I myself will see him with my own eyes. Job remained faithful throughout all of his trials. And the story of Job ends with God restoring all of Job's blessings. For his faithfulness, hoping in the midst of his suffering, God doubled all of the blessings that Job had before his trials. Now friends, please don't misunderstand the the point of the story of Job this morning. The, The material blessings Job received are not the point of the story. In fact, there are numerous faithful men and women throughout the Bible who experienced tremendous trials and hardship yet didn't receive material rewards. I think of the great heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11. The material rewards that Job received were not the point of the story. The point of Job's story and what the example of Job here in James 5, 11 through 12 encourages us to remember is that whatever trials we're facing today, they are not the end of the story. Understand that, friends. Whatever suffering you're going through today is not the end of the story. Is your marriage on the rocks today? God says the story's not over yet. Are you struggling financially today? God says the story isn't over yet. Maybe you're going through a a period of prolonged grief and pain. God says, trust me, the story's not over yet. Maybe you're even dealing with a terminal diagnosis. God says, the story's not over. Will you trust me? Will you hope in my plans? See, friends, if you'll trust God's faithfulness and hope in his plans, you too can come to see James's promise in verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Is that true? That's true. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, no matter our trials. One of my favorite things when our family's up at our cabin up in northern Wisconsin I love to go out on our dock at night, late at night when it's dark and quiet, and I look up at the stars in the sky. And the stars are just brilliant. I mean, they're just blowing up in the sky. And it's just overwhelming, the beauty and the grandeur of the universe above me. But you know something, friends? To see the beauty of those stars, you have to go out in the dark. And in the same way, Many of God's greatest blessings in our lives go unseen until our times of trial. But it's in the midst of our trials that they shine forth with amazing brilliance. So if you find yourself in the dark today, let me encourage you, look up. Look up because God hasn't left you and he isn't finished with you yet. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Lastly, here in our passage today, after encouraging us to hope in God's plans like Job, James appears to make a dramatic shift as he gives us this instruction on swearing oaths. Verse 12, James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Now, while this may appear to be a strange fit for our passage today, James is reminding us here that as we wait on the Lord with patience, we must also speak with patience. 
And as he's often done throughout our study this summer, James is reminding us that our speech is a primary indicator of what's going on inside of our hearts. And so James is encouraging us here to integrity with our speech. In other words, if our hearts are truly submitted to Jesus, our tongues are going to manifest that reality. And one of the ways that they'll manifest this reality is through honesty and reliability in what we're going to say. See, the Bible's not against swearing oaths. Understand that, friends. That's not what James is talking about. If you've ever served on a jury or bear testimony in a courtroom and you've sworn an oath, there's nothing wrong with swearing oaths according to Scripture. In fact, verses like Deuteronomy 10.20, God actually told the people of Israel to swear oaths by his name. In Numbers 32, God tells the people of Israel, when you swear an oath by my name, keep that oath. Even in Acts 2.30, God himself swore an oath to David. The Bible is not against swearing oaths. So what's James talking about here? What James is talking about here is that for the Christian, oath should be unnecessary. We shouldn't need to swear oaths. We should be known as people of honesty and integrity, and our speech should be so trustworthy and reliable that we don't even need to worry about swearing oaths. That's what James is talking about here. As we wrap up this morning, friends, we are people who live in a fallen world, tainted by the reality of sin. And every single one of us is going to be touched by the reality of suffering and trials in life. They're inevitable. But as James has reminded us today, God gives us the resources to face these trials with hope and perseverance and trust. We need to look to God's word and the examples of those faithful men and women who have gone before us. We need to let their testimonies encourage us as we wait patiently on the Lord today. And so if you're in the midst of a, a period of suffering and trial today, let me encourage you, friends, like the farmer, wait patiently on the Lord's provision. And like the prophets, serve God's purposes as you wait. And like Job, hope in God's plans, knowing that God is full of mercy and compassion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that we can trust you and hope in you in the midst of our suffering and pain. You are a faithful God. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we can hold on to hope in the midst of whatever difficulties we might be facing. Lord, if there are any men or women here this morning, young or old, facing great trials and adversity, I pray that you would come near to them today and encourage them with the truth of your word to press on, to hold on to hope, to know that you're not done with them yet. The story isn't finished. Be their strength. Be their guide. Be their comforter. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, let us hold on to that promise. In Jesus' name.